Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. I am grateful for you listening to the 76th episode of the Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears podcast. We're going to be worth your time again this week. And this time it's with some really smart questions uh, from you guys about the Chiefs and the Royals and a bonus section that's a little bit different this week, but I think is important to anybody who cares even a little bit about college sports. And, and it also ties directly to some things going on here locally around Kansas City. Um, so, okay, uh, we're going to start this show like we often do this time of year, right? Um, and that's with the Chiefs. And specifically with a point that I hope can sort of like simplify and streamline some stuff around the team that I probably think about because I have this weird job and you, dear listener, uh, presumably have a real job with real stresses and don't have the time to think about adults performing exercise competition the way that I do. So uh, I'm here to serve, right? Um One thing that is becoming clearer to me with this Chiefs team than with most NFL teams, certainly most Chiefs teams I've covered, is is how much teams evolve over a season. Like, and and we can forget that sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, you know, we we can remember the 2019 Super Bowl champions, right? And and kind of forget how bad they were defensively, Um, especially early and certainly throughout the season before that Mexico City game. Um, we can forget how the offense looked a little different before Mahomes, when Mahomes was out, or I'm sorry, when Mahomes was playing at the beginning of the year, then he gets hurt when he was playing. That was a different offense than it was when he got back from the injury. Um, it's easy to forget how important that first round buy was, you know, for, for Mahomes' agility, um, which he obviously needed, um, you know, most obviously in that AFC championship game, that running against the Titans, and also Frank Bar- Frank Clark's burst off the edge, uh, I think was helped a lot with that too. So we can forget stuff like this. Like they rushed for over 100 yards in each of their last five games, including the playoffs. Uh, and they only did that five times total in the first 15 games. Um, and remember those playoff games, they trailed in each of those. So it wasn't like they were, you know, protecting leads or whatever. So, you know, remember how much of a pro Kendall Fuller was that year, you know, taking a demotion in a contract year and keeping up as a good teammate, like that stuff matters, you know, and that's just teams change and and they they have to change for the good. And the the point I'm making here is that the Chiefs haven't been impressive these first eight games, right? I think we all agree that if they play the next nine, the same they have the first eight, they're probably not going to make the playoffs and, and certainly wouldn't be a Super Bowl threat even if they did. But what I'm saying here is that I think sometimes we can fall into this trap where we think the future is just going to be like the past, you know, just because that's how the past was, right? Like, and look, certainly straight up full transparency. Um, I was guilty of that going into this season. Um, I don't think I was alone in that, but like, you know, just thinking that a team that went 16 and one with the starters, you know, before the Super Bowl last year and then got smashed in large part because the offensive line couldn't block anyone. I was on the train of thinking that, you know, not even a great offensive line, but with a representative NFL offensive line, with the 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 core intact and still not old, I thought we'd see more of the same. You know, I I would have told you that it was more likely the Chiefs go fourteen and three, or fifteen and two, than it would be ten and seven. Um, but here we are, right? And so the thing that I've thought about a lot this week, and I wrote some of this in a column that's up on the website right now, but 
I think we're seeing this team evolve and it's subtle and it's slower than you'd probably like, but I do think it's happening. So, you know, look, like here's an example. The defense that got trucked just a few weeks ago against the Bills, I mean, that that, that team just got embarrassed, <laughs> you know, got, uh, you know, got demasculated, uh, as my friend Therese would say. Um, you know, that group had Daniel Sorensen chasing ghosts as a deep free safety and it had Mike Dana starting at the end and had Ben Neiman as a starting linebacker. And the group going forward, we're seeing Juan Thornhill's athleticism on the back end. We're seeing Willie Gay's speed and strength with the linebackers. And at some point, maybe even this weekend, Melvin Ingram on the edge, which will mean more time for Chris Jones inside, which is where, you know, he earned that enormous contract extension and earned that reputation as one of the league's but best defenders. So that stuff matters. And I also believe we're getting you know, close to the expiration date on this storyline about, you know, two safety shell coverage being like some magic trick to stop the Chiefs. Like, I know we all tend to overreact to stuff. We make things a bigger deal than they are because that's part of the fun about sports, if we're honest. But the Chiefs have seen coverages like this before, you guys. Like, and it's not, you know, this weird thing right now, it's not that different than a few years ago when the thing going around the league was that the Chiefs couldn't beat man coverage. Remember that? So, you know, these things are cyclical and there's always variance involved. And if I'm right about my theories on this and about Mahomes in particular, I really do think that we're about to see a different offense going forward, you know, and, and one that's going to be more confident, taking the easy yards with short passes, one that's going to be more willing to, you know, amplify the strengths of a really good run blocking line. People miss that, but this is a good run blocking line. Um, I think the Chiefs are going to be more willing to amplify that against defenses are basically begging the Chiefs to run the ball more. I thought we saw some of that with with Derek Gore uh, against the Giants, actually, on Monday night. So anyway, I I think once that stuff happens, we're going to look back at the first few months, and some people are going to be able to laugh at some of the panic they had. Others are going to pretend it never happened, you know? Um, And look, I'm not telling you that the Chiefs don't have problems here. You know, let's be clear about that. What I'm telling you is that if you think the Chiefs – if you think the problems are going to stay the same, then you think Andy Reid can't adjust. You think Andy Reid doesn't have a history of adjusting. You think Patrick Mahomes is, you know, a one-trick quarterback who the league needed three years, an MVP, two AFC titles, and a parade to finally figure out when all along the answer was just to play two safeties deep. Like, I just can't get there, you know? And if you're not with me on that, I get it. Uh, the Chiefs certainly have not earned your trust or mine so far this season. But I'm just looking at a team that's had some bad luck, a genuinely tough schedule, and is still 4-4, four and four, which obviously isn't great, not what we expected, but it's a game and a half out in the division and two in the conference with nine games remaining. So I just think the team we see in the second half is going to be different than the one that we've seen so far. Um, I think that's logical. Uh, I think that makes sense. And if I'm right about that, then I think the conversation we're going to have around the team is going to be a lot different going forward. So um, I don't know what that what will happen in the in, in the playoffs. And I'll say this: I wouldn't discount the possibility that that the Chiefs don't make the playoffs. But I'm still in the spot where I'm thinking the most likely scenario here is that the Chiefs are just a mother of a wild card playoff opponent in someone else's building, and that they're still going to have a say in how the AFC goes down. So. Look, please feel free to save this and mock me if it turns out I'm wrong. You know, um, <laughs> after all, I'm, I'm the same guy who wrote before the season that the Chiefs' biggest threat in the AFC was the Browns, right? So, um, 
I got nothing but guesses on this, but uh, but that's how I see it, you guys. Uh, I really do. I really do. I think it makes logical sense. So, okay, uh, before we move on to the rest of the show, here comes the spiel. Three asks, and you know it's cool if you only do one or two or even zero, but I got to ask. The first, please help support us by giving the Sports Pass a try. Dollar a month for the first three months or $30 for a year. Just reach out to me, Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever, and I'll send you the link. The second, uh, please rate and review us. We appreciate the love you've given us already. Uh, I see you. Thank you. Um, the the, the I'm, I'm telling you guys, the, the, the reviews and the ratings you've given has been terrific. Um, but if you haven't done that, um, if you haven't already done that, please please give it a try. Please give us a rating and review. really helps us get the word out. Um, and the third thing, if you want to participate in next week's show, and I hope you do, uh, please call 816-234-4365. Uh, Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Uh, Put the number in your phone, call anytime, 816-234-4365. One more time, 816-234-4365. All right, guys, uh, appreciate you. Uh, Quick break, and then we're going to be back with these questions. Hey, Sam, this is KC calling from... California and first time, long time. And my question for you is, where is the reporting from the star on what's going on inside the chief's organization? Something is rotten in the state of Arrowhead and we can't figure out what it is. What happened to Andy Reid at the hospital? Are the players fighting with each other? Are they going out late at night? What's going on? Can you get some inside reporting, please, about what's going on at uh, the stadium and in the facilities? Because there's a lot more to this story about what's going on with the Chiefs than meets the eye, I have to think. Thanks for everything you do. Big fan. Much appreciated. Yeah, so same as with anything else in the world that's worth thinking about. I, I think there's more than one thing going on here. And, and before we get to all that, I'd like to say that things – just I don't think they're as bad as some of you are making them out to be. I know we got to this some in the lead, but look, the Chiefs are four and four, which isn't great, but it's also not two and six. The advanced numbers still love the offense. Um and, and the defense, I get the competition has been great. All right. I get that. But the defense is starting to show signs of the same type of improvement we saw last year and the year before. So you look at the standings, there's not a huge gap. You know, I'm just I'm trying to make the point here. This season is not lost. It's not. It's not time for the obit. All right. Um, all that said, yes, um, I do agree with you that something is wrong. Something has been going on. Um, I know it's easy to make the connections with what Andy Reid is dealing with away from football, um, with his health, with his with his family. Um, you know, or Patrick Mahomes being a new dad. Um, and look, I, I'm not going to say that that stuff doesn't matter at all. Um, of course it does. I just don't think it's that simple. I just don't think it's as simple as a lot of people are trying to make it out to be. Like, um, you know, I think this team feels pressure. I think they feel it collectively. Um, I think they feel it individually. And I've made the point here before and with the column last week that I completely believe in. I think Mahomes is feeling it the most. And, you know, look, like we're not in the locker rooms now, so I'm not going to speculate too much on what's going on between guys, but I would tell you that my sense haven't been around this team for a long time, is that there is some of what, I don't know, call it creative tension in that room, especially on the defense. And there's just, there's a lot of dynamics at play 
from who's in the lineup to Tyron Matthews' contract, Frank Clark seeing a different part of his career, um, you know, coming closer and closer every every day, every week. Uh, the emergence of Gay and Bolton. The the corners probably feel like they're put out in too much space with not enough support. Um, I mean, no team is perfect. And the truth is that none of this stuff matters in how teams are often judged. But I do think that there's a lot of factors going on that are sort of like tugging away at, you know, from what would be the Chiefs' best version of themselves. You know what I mean? So, look, in the question there, Casey mentioned, you know, guys staying out too late. And I, I don't worry about that. Like, I, I think that stuff happens a lot less now than it used to be because you go out and if you're famous and in this town, they're in a Chiefs player that's not famous. Um, everybody's got a camera in their pocket, you know, and it's just, it's impossible to keep that stuff quiet. So, you know, maybe there's back rooms or private parties or whatever, but really, I I think that stuff happens so much less than it used to. Not just social media, but I just, there's so much more money on the line and guys know so much more about sleep and nutrition and all that. I, I, I just think problems with partying or whatever, that's a, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying it's the rare exception by now. So, I think the rest of the season is going to depend mostly on two things. First, uh, it's going to require the defense's recent improvement to be a real thing and not a blip. And for whatever it's worth, I think there's a chance that this group is closer to the middle of the pack than the bottom the rest of the way. Even against what I think we all know is a really difficult schedule. Because I don't think it's a coincidence that just, you know, better play from the defense these last few weeks... It's not a coincidence that it's come as, you know, Juan Thornhill's playing more and Willie Gay and Nick Bolton, you know, being better at the linebacker position. Melvin Ingram isn't what he used to be, but he's still a problem. And if Frank Clark's body stays strong and healthy, I believe the pass rush is going to continue to come on. So, you know, the the other factor, the other thing I think is going to determine the rest of the season, it's it's Mahomes. And he's got to play better. Guys, like, you know, the stuff is all right there in front of him. He needs a little bit better discipline to be okay taking the easy six or ten yards or whatever instead of forcing it downfield. He needs to manipulate the pocket a little bit better and anticipate throws a little bit better. And we know he can do all these things because we've seen him do all these things. So, again, like the the burden of proof, obviously, certainly 100% on the Chiefs because, you know, really in the last month they've looked good in the second half against Washington, and that's about it. But if what we're really talking about is that the defense needs to do what it's done the last few years, and Mahomes needs to be more of what he's been in the last three, I mean, like we're not talking about huge stretches of the imagination here, you know? Um, Okay, more Chief stuff. Here's Nick. Hey, Sam. This is Nick from Lenexa. I was watching the end of the Colts-Titans game. Noticed that Eric Fisher was playing left tackle. Looks like he was doing pretty good in the overtime. But I was wondering if uh, uh, the Chiefs could have ever re-signed Eric and if that would have been a good choice over Orlando Brown. Thank you. Love the podcast. Um, I don't think so, Nick. Uh, and, and some of this is about timing because when the Chiefs had to make a decision, there was just there was no way they could be sure that Eric Fisher would be able to play this year. Um, and I'm just being honest, like I don't think it was even probable at that point. And <laughs> I'm just telling you, if the Chiefs lost the Super Bowl the way they lost it and then rolled the dice that a 30-some left tackle would return at full strength at the fast end of the recovery timetable for an Achilles injury, 
I'm just saying like that would have been an easy column to write and and you guys would have been right there with me. Um, I'd also point out that, and, and look, I'm not telling you I watch all the Colts film, right? Uh, but I do know that a lot of you guys weren't thrilled with Fisher's play over the years and that at least by pro football focuses numbers, uh, he's been significantly worse so far this season than at any point in his career since his first year at left tackle. Uh, he's already given up more sacks than he did all last year, for instance, already been called for more penalties. Um, now, was was Orlando Brown the best option? Um, probably not. And, and I think the Chiefs agree with that because they tried to move mountains to sign Trent Williams to a huge contract. So I think the Chiefs signaled that pretty clearly. So as far as backup plans, I think Brown and... Look, I, I know they gave up a first-round pick, and that's how it's often framed. Uh, but if you work the drop, draft compensation through some of these different models, you know, because the Ravens sent picks to the Chiefs too, you know, the way it all washes out, the Chiefs gave up the equivalent of a mid to late second-round pick. So, at least at that type of cost, I think it's probably the, the best that the Chiefs could do. Um, Orlando Brown is a little bit of an awkward fit with the Chiefs' offense because his feet are slow. Uh, he's vulnerable against speed rushes around the edge. But I also think Mahomes needs to get better and not putting his guys in bad spots and be able to move up in their space. So I know I've made this bef- this point before, but some of what looks like Brown getting beat, some of that is oftentimes Brown doing his job, but his guy gets around him 12 or so yards downfield, which no tackle is expected or asked to protect that far. And at that point, it's up to Mahomes to use that vacated space to his advantage. So I'd also point out that Brown is making about half the money that the Colts are paying Fisher this year. Um, and so, again, yes, they give up picks and Fisher was a free agent, but I'm just trying to paint the whole picture here. You know, look, um, the Chiefs are going to have an interesting decision at the end of this season. And it's not going to be about like, you know, how they see uh, it's not just going to be about how they see Brown progress. It's also going to be about how they see Mahomes' comfort with Brown because um, the quarterback's not going anywhere, right? And it's going to be about how those calculations line up with what's available in free agency or in the draft at left tackle. Um, you know, and of course, like what a potential long-term contract for Brown would be. Uh, if he wants to reset the market, probably going to have to do that somewhere else, right? Uh, my guess is they'll end up paying him uh, a lot of money, not Trent Williams' money, but I think they'll pay him a lot of money. Uh, he's a good player, even if he's not great. And, you know, the Chiefs don't have time to draft and sit and wear it as a guy learns on the job. Not at that position, you know. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see. One of the really interesting storylines the rest of the season going into the offseason uh, is going to be Orlando Brown. Um, okay, one more Chiefs question. And uh, I sincerely, guys, I sincerely enjoy it when, when you call me out. Um, all right, here's Brian. Hey, Sam. It's Brian from Chicago. This is a question for the podcast. Uh, are you finally willing to acknowledge, uh, I know you've kind of downplayed it all year, but wide receiver two might be a bigger issue for the Chiefs than we all thought. I know you initially said that if uh, Hill and Kelsey uh, are your first two targets, your number three targets, not your biggest problem. And I understand that, but wide receiver two, McCole Hardman seems effectively non-existent in the passing game. And if you want to ride Byron Pringle to the Super Bowl, be my guest. But I'm wondering if a second meaningful wideout target outside of Tyreek Hill is, a, is an essential part of what made Patrick Mahomes so lethal. And I realize uh, Sammy Watkins wasn't always healthy, and other guys were able to step up. 
but it seems like there is something missing in the passing game, and I'm wondering if a second serious wide receiver threat uh, would meaningfully have helped this team. Obviously, we're not going to do something at this point in the season, but if that's something we could do differently, maybe we would. Love your thoughts. Thanks. I Guys, I just I don't think wide receiver two is a huge deal. I I really don't. I I understand what a lot of you say, and Pringle's a fine enough player, and Hardman's going to have his moments. You know, Josh Gordon's something, but you know nobody's mistaking those guys as a huge upgrade over Sammy Watkins. You know, at least <laughs> healthy Sammy Watkins, right? So this isn't a hill I'm going to die on. Um, <laughs> maybe it's more like a hill argue from though, because you just can't tell me with a straight face that Mahomes is as good as we all think he is. If he requires three all pros on every drop back, like Hill and Kelsey, those guys are not just spectacular talents, but they're spectacular talents who serve as good compliments to both each other and to Mahomes. You know what I mean? Like one is forcing teams to basically play nine on 11 inside 20 yards. And the other is as good as anyone in the league at getting open in the short and intermediate game. So, you know, put replacement level guys with them and that just has to be enough. And I do still think there's upside with Josh Gordon. I'll say that too. So I guess where I come down on this stuff is, is, is here. Like the chiefs would love an upgrade at that position. Um, you know, same way we talked about, you know, Trent Williams in a previous question. I think the Chiefs showed that they would love an upgrade at that position with, you know, Juju Smith-Schuster, uh, the, you know, the contract they offered him. So uh, it would certainly improve the passing game, right? But I think the much bigger issue for the offense is that Mahomes is playing well below his standard. Like, Matt Stafford is having a career year, and his third pass-catching option is Van Jefferson. Like, we all love Mahomes. Like, he's incredible. But I also don't think we need to be making excuses for him. You know what I mean? Like, he's he's got to be better. Um, okay, uh, guys, let's finish with the Royals question. I like this one. Hi, Sam. This is Neil, originally from Paola, but living out in L.A. now. With uh, baseball offseason finally upon us, I've been thinking a lot about potential parallels between the current iteration of the Royals team and the 2012-2013 teams, do you think that the Royals need to, slash, will they actually try to pursue a James Shields type of trade? I know Dayton is on the record as really loving having veterans in the clubhouse to teach the young guys, but of course it'd be nice if those veterans are still impact players. It was cool seeing Dyson and Davis and Holland back this year, but you know they're in the twilight of their career. At the same time, uh, Jay Piccolo is now the GM, so maybe he sees things differently. So, Sam, to whatever degree you want to speculate on the general proposition I've laid out or even get into hypotheticals of specific players or positions of need, I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Love the pod. Uh, thanks for taking the time. So uh, I don't know exactly how all this will work, and um, honestly, I think we're going to need some time to see exactly how the new structure of the front office works together. But I'll tell you this, like, I don't think there's going to be a drastic change here. Um, you know, Dayton still has final, you know, tie-breaking type power. And and these guys, not just Dayton and JJ, but I'd add Renee Francisco and Scott Sharp and Gene Watson and Jin Wong and, and others to the list. They've just, they've always been collaborative. You know, um, th- there have been decisions that were effectively made by one of the assistant GMs. And 
if, if it worked or not, Dayton is the one to wear it publicly because that's how the world operates. But this has never been like a dictatorship, you know. Um, I'd also say that JJ is his own man. Um, he has his own opinions, um, his own personality, his own leadership style. But uh, <laughs> he's also worked under Dayton for 15 years. So, you know, it's not like the Royals are about to take some drastic left turn from their core philosophies, you know, because JJ's had probably a bigger than a lot of people realize part in making the Royals what they are now. Same as Scott Sharp, same as Renee, same as those other guys that I mentioned earlier. So, um, look, the, the, the question here is a good one though, um, from Neil. And it's a good question for a lot of reasons because as different as these two rebuilds are, you know, the first one and, and what they're trying now, and they're way different. Um, I do think there's a, that, that Neil presents the comparison that could be made. Um, but one big difference I think makes this question a little bit difficult, uh, you know, about whether they'll pursue a James Shields type trade, uh, trade in 2012, that team was a bunch of kids and look, I think the 2021 team or 2022 team, I should say, will have three rookies, um, at least three rookies playing a major role with, uh, Prado, Melendez and Witt. But that 2012 team was just, it was all kids. And without going back and clicking on everybody's baseball reference page, I think Jeff Francoeur and John Broxton, I believe, were the only guys on that team with postseason experience. And neither one of those guys played a full 2013 season with the Royals. So, you know, the argument that the Royals really needed some juice uh, with some experience, you know, know how to win. It was just, that was an easy argument to make, you know. And the 2021 Royals, um, you know, again, I think the 2022 Royals, I guess I should say, a different deal. Um, Salvador Perez was a World Series MVP. Andrew Benintendi batted second for a world champion. Michael A. Taylor, Carlos Santana, there's just a lot of experience in guys who've been on winning teams here. Whit Merrifield has not been on a winner in Kansas City, but you can't tell me that guy's not a winning player. You know what I mean? You just, you can't, I'd say the same thing about Nicky Lopez. Um, you know, I just, I think that those things are true. So now if you want to make the case that the pitching staff could use someone like that, um, you know, I think that argument has a little bit more weight. Um, Mike Miner has been in the postseason with two different teams, but you know, Irvin Santana, Greg Holland, Wade Davis, guys like that are likely not coming back. Um, so there isn't a lot of big league postseason experience with the pitchers. So maybe that's a consideration, but. I would assume, I don't know this, but I would assume that if it is, it would be more like a tiebreaker, you know, than the reason to go grab someone. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think you'd want to get in a position where you're signing or trading for a guy simply because he pitched in an LCS a couple of years ago. You know, the talent's got to be there. It's got to be the right player and the right person, all that stuff. So, but if you're looking into two or three different guys and you've got similar reports on them, I don't know. Maybe you see the one with the postseason experience as the better fit, you know? Um, but again, like with everything else, time will tell on this. Um, okay, guys, uh, one more break, and then we're back to finish strong. Okay, guys, let's finish strong. And the bonus section this week, a little bit different than usual. We try to keep this space about Kansas City, you know, somebody in Kansas City or directly involved with Kansas City. And that's not necessarily the case this week, but I do think that this is interesting and worth the time of anybody in Kansas City. I'm talking about the news of the end of the NCAA's case with Oklahoma State basketball, 
from infractions centering around a former assistant coach who was caught steering players to a professional agency. Uh, you know, something, something of a, a five year process that has ended with a postseason ban and three years probation. Um, you know, the first and last thing I'll say on the NCAA's behalf around this is that there really is no great way to punish these things. You know, nobody's caught in real time. Um, the investigations take time, appeals take time. So if you're the sort that says like only those specifically involved should be punished, then there needs to be acknowledgement that going that route would effectively mean that schools would care even less about the rules than they do now because they know if they get caught, they can just fire the offenders and move on. You know, no risk, all reward at that point, right? Um, so now, all, all that being said, this is a flatly absurd situation. And I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that the future of the NCAA is less stable and less secure because of this punishment. Um, we're going to get into that, but here, here at the top, I want to play two clips from Oklahoma state coach, Mike Boynton, um, who's a really impressive coach and man, by the way. Um, I want you to listen and hear the emotions that he's speaking with. And, and also remember that this is, he was speaking on prepared remarks at this point. Um, and so this is the stuff that he probably practiced the stuff he knew he was going to say, and it still drove him to tears. Um, okay. Here's Mike. Thank you all for being here. I'm disappointed, disgusted, appalled, frustrated. But somewhere in Indianapolis, there's a group of people celebrating. Stan Wilcox gave a directive. He sent John Duncan and the team to save face. They won. Strong, right? Um, okay, so then a few minutes later in this, um, he calls out a dozen or so NCAA folks by name, uh, from investigators to appeals committee members to the infractions committee, calls these people out by name, one by one, and then goes here. They slept well last night. They felt good about the work they did. While I explain to 17 kids that their dreams of playing the NCAA tournament this year couldn't be realized. And that's shameful. And there's no wonder that nobody trusts them because they get to hide behind letters, COI, IF, and they don't have to come and do this and answer questions, and talk to kids, and talk to parents.
But so the message is clear because we, we had a 300, one $300 violation, no failure to monitor, no lack of institutional control, no recruiting violations, no head coach responsibility, no players playing ineligible. So if you got some of those things going on, don't do what we did. What we did was we asked them that we work with them through this process. Now, look, of course, Boynton is, is looking at this from a specific perspective, right? And of course, Oklahoma State is not angry about this only on behalf of the student athletes. This is money lost, a lot of money lost. And nobody likes to be tied to NCAA punishments like this for a lot of reasons. But the facts of this case are pretty egregious and, and should be like, honestly, like put some fear and anger into any other major program, especially ones involved in other cases, because Oklahoma State fully cooperated on this. And this is by all accounts the first time in NCAA history that a school receives a postseason ban without being found on lack of institutional control, academic fraud, recruiting violations, failure to monitor, or head coach responsibility. Uh, the NCAA isn't ac accusing Oklahoma State of any of that. No competitive advantage. Uh, the only thing a player was found to have received was $300 which was paid back with the player suspended. Um, and it's still pulling the hardest lever. The NCAA is still pulling the hardest lever it has outside of the death penalty. Um, it's, <laughs> this is wild, man. This is, this has never happened before. Um, and I want to play one more clip here. And, and this is Oklahoma State Athletics Director Chad Weiberg uh, asked about whether the experience of cooperating with an investigation like this and not being found of the tra traditional big picket, big ticket, God, why can't I talk? Big ticket violations and still taking a year on the chin, uh, whether that experience changes his perspective on cooperating with the NCAA. Um, okay, here's Chad. I hope that we never have to go through anything like this again, um, obviously. But if we do, we will do things different. I mean, that's a big deal, right? Like <laughs> the NCAA is incentivizing schools to not cooperate. And Oklahoma State is openly telling schools they should not cooperate. Um, and look, that last clip may have hit a personal spot for Mizzou fans, you know, after seeing their school wear some pretty severe punishments for the shadiness of what I think has been fairly described as a rogue tutor. There was nothing Mizzou could have done, you know, institutionally, nothing they could have been expected to do to prevent that. Mizzou cooperated fully. And Mizzou still wore some scholarship and recruiting reductions. It's, it's just so stupid. And, you know, kids who are like just obviously not involved with the transgressions are being punished. And high school recruits are going without scholarships, without opportunities because of all this. And how does that make any sense at all? Now, the other local angle here is obvious. Um, and that's if Oklahoma State is getting this punishment for something I consider relatively minor and inconsequential to competition. And I mean, really, like that assistant coach should never work again because he violated what I think should be a sacred trust between coach and player, but that's on him, you know? 
So if Oklahoma State got this much, then what in the holy heck is Kansas basketball about to get, right? And I can't say that I've asked people over there about this a ton, but I can tell you I've asked more than a couple people and done it more than a couple times, and I have yet to hear anyone at Kansas say they're not fearing or at least aware that the worst is possible. And that was before this case ended, you know? Uh, you know, Bill Self has basically gone nuclear on this, lawyering up, talking tough. And honestly, I think that's the only move colleges should consider anymore. Do not cooperate. Go at them. They are weakened. And that's your only hope because the NCAA has consistently shown that it doesn't really care about cooperation. It cares about its pound of flesh and it's not motivated to punish the guilty parties it's motivated to justify its existence and budget. And I don't know why we shouldn't be expecting Kansas to get it even worse than Oklahoma State, much worse. But that's not the point at the moment, because I think the point at the moment is that schools around the country have to see what just happened with Oklahoma State, and they have to know that they could be next. You know, Kansas is a little bit different because there's some stuff there, you know, there's some jealousy from other programs and also a little bit of animosity, you know, for what schools think is a program that's flown a little too close to the sun for a little bit too long. You know what I mean? But the timing of all this is interesting because the NCAA is meeting to rethink its constitution and everything is on the table. And I just wonder if these schools, especially the ones toward the top of the food chain, I just wonder if they're going to believe that the NCAA just no longer serves their specific purposes, you know, beyond holding championship events for non-revenue sports. That's what I wonder. That's where my head is. I wonder if the schools that generate the money will come to the conclusion that the NCAA is bad for business, that the only time people hear about the NCAA is in connection with investigations and punishments that never hit the guilty people, and that in today's reality, the continued structure where players are often hit worse than anyone else is just untenable. So I don't know what exactly the solution is. And for what it's worth, I think that whatever the next structure will look like will include some unintended consequences that a lot of people, you know, won't think was worth the rub. You know what I mean? But I'm just telling you, it feels like we're seeing the final days of the NCAA as we know it, you know, or at least as we once knew it. I think this thing's getting close to the end. And I think we're going to look back and remember moments like this, a horrible overreach, a program wronged as one of the biggest reasons and moments in the fall. I really do. Um, there really is no entity in major sports that does more self-induced harm than major college sports. Um, it is exhausting. Um, okay, guys, uh, that is the show. Uh, thanks to everybody called in, even those we couldn't get to. Thanks to Monty Davis for putting us all together. And as always, the biggest thanks to you for joining and letting us be a small party life. Um, okay, guys, have a great weekend. Be kind.